Hey, everybody. It is episode 89 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris and Steve coming at you from Austin, Texas. How are you doing today, Steve? I'm doing fantastic. How about you, Chris? Doing well. Just trying not to melt in the 106 degree weather that we'll be having today, but it's all good. Now we're inside in the ice cold AC and I don't have a beer, but I, I'll have one later. <laughs> yep. So today we continue our series on what does the race require? This time picking up where we left off on the 10K and half marathon that we started to tee up last episode in part two of episode 88. And we're going to continue that discussion and perhaps intro the marathon, but probably not get all the way through the marathon. So this is going to ultimately be a four part series. So look forward to that. And I do have, before we jump into the 10K and, and half, a good listener question that came over the last week that I'll throw at you, Steve, and we'll kind of bat it around a little bit. But of course, before we get there, we will talk intro topics, running news, as we always do. We've got to get back to the New York City Marathon because they made more waves this week with some additional athlete announcements. Last week, we, talk about, we talked about Shalane coming back officially to defend her title and Des joining that field, field as well. We've got more Americans added to the field. Molly Huddle has officially signed up for New York. Stephanie Bruce and Alephine Tulliamuk from Ben Rosario's group NAZ Elite are also going to be towing the line on the women's side. And then we've added the international studs, Mary Cataney, who was a favorite last year and multi-time, multi-time New York champion already. Vivian Chiriot is another big name that's been out of the field, added to the field from the international, international perspective. So this women's field is stacked certainly now from a U.S. perspective and definitively stacked from an international perspective. Rivals Boston's field for sure from April. The only big player from the U.S. side they were missing is Jordan Hesse, who will be in Chicago. But this is going to be this is going to be interesting because Steve, I think you know, we know we know Molly if she gets things right, and as we've been kind of talking about kind of can shift her focus to the marathon. We know she has great potential at the distance. And then we know Stephanie Bruce has amazing experience at the distance enough to potentially make some waves under Ben Rosario's guidance. And Alephine Tulliamuk, you know, has run some marathons, but hasn't really shown her potential yet. But we know that potential is there. You pair all of that with the perhaps the greatest female marathoner of all time in Mary Cataney. And we've got a stacked field. What do you make of these additions? Well, you've got two people you didn't mention, Chris, um, who I also think on the women's side are folks we should be thinking about um, are uh, from the U.S. perspective, Allie Kiefer, who's been on a tear lately and recently. And, you know, I think some people feel like she's in her improvement to this point has been um, in such a way that she won't see continued to improvement. But I think she's a 225 marathoner, potentially maybe faster. So, you know, I think that's somebody to keep an eye on. The other person that we didn't mention, who's because uh, she Allie's run two twenty nine low. So the other person we didn't mention, who is a recent American, is Sally Kipiego, and we've got to remember her in the yep. mix here. An Olympian, an Olympic medalist in the ten thousand meters, ran for Texas Tech. Um, she's an American now, and that makes 
her be in play. So, you know, it'll be really interesting. We know one thing for sure that this course and this route is so much more about getting the win than running fast, fast. Although I do think there'll be pacers and they'll try to run fast. Uh, it's a lot more about winning the race than it is anything else. Um, and when you talk about it that way, it's sort of, and I think in a, in a small way, I don't want to say this too, I don't want to overstate this, Chris, but in a small way, it does play out where the obvious considerable advantages that Mary Cataney and Vivian Chariot have of being pretty much in another category than the rest of these women in terms of what they've run from a from a time perspective. Well, at, at New York, the, the playing field gets leveled, as we saw last year, right? So, um, and I think that's a really good thing for a lot of these women, American women in the field. I think someone who runs, you know, 228 at, at New York is going to be in the top 10 for sure, maybe even further up. Um, which is a huge win for all these American women. And also, um, I think it plays really well into Molly's hands because the slower the race is, the more her skill sets come to bear. If the race goes under 220, although Molly may have been in fitness to run under 220, we haven't seen it yet for a variety of reasons. As we talked about a couple of episodes ago, of course, Boston being a complete and utter shit show. So we can't really judge anybody too much on that. So anyway, those are my thoughts, Chris, is that you've got two front runners. Um, we don't really know exact. Uh, and then you've got, you know, Shalane who won last year, but also, um, and is also showing incredible fitness right now, Chris. So, you know, and I'm, I'm excited about this race. It, it is going to be a lot of fun. We won't see a world record, of course, but what we will see, a world record is going to have to happen for the women um, someplace other than New York for sure. But we should see an incredibly competitive race. Yeah, and it's certainly going to, assuming good weather, is going to favor those women that can close strongly. I think Shalane showed it last year running low fives to close things out. We know Mary Katani can do that. We know Vivian Churia could do that. We know Huddle has the potential to do that, but we haven't seen her put that together at the end of a marathon yet. So I think my three favorites, if I'm sitting here today, still have to be Shalane, Mary, and Vivian. Yeah, I, 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 and I agree. I just think that you put a little asterisk beside both Sally and Molly um, as, non, as, as having was we've talked about before those aberrational numbers that aren't indicative indicative of where we know they're what they're capable of, right? They're yeah. in the they're in the Des Linden category of two twenty two two twenty one. Shalane, they're in that same category that those are. But we shall see. We shall see. Going to be fascinating, and obviously, we'll give our predictions as we get closer here in a couple of months. All right, now we've got to talk, Steve, about the Falmouth Road Race that went out went off this past weekend it's a 7.1 mile race on cape cod in the city of falmouth not too far from boston and it's a race that's been running for this was its 46th year it's one of these like beach to beacon that's just a historic american road race and it's a part of our americana as a distance running nation the inspiration for the race actually came in 1972 when Frank Shorter won the Olympic gold medal in the marathon 
in Munich and a bartender saw it all happening and he said, if we put a race on here in Falmouth, maybe, just maybe, Frank Shorter will show up and run. And so Tommy Leonard was the bartender and runner who put it all together, had 100 people the first year and ultimately did, in fact, attract America's best marathoners of the time. He had Bill Rogers, Frank Shorter, Salazar coming to this race in its early stages, Joan Benoit on the women's side, who had multiple championships, Lynn Jennings and others who have won this race. And so it's a big, big deal, historic race, kind of a weird distance, but it certainly has character as a course because it's pretty challenging. This race had been dominated, especially on the men's side with the East African. Stephen Sambu had actually won three years in a row from Kenya. Sorry, four years in a row from Kenya from 2014 to 2017. And Kenyans had dominated most of the last decade. The last North American to win was Mark Kerp in 1988. If you don't count Khalid Kaducci, who won it as a Moroccan before he became a national nationalized citizen on the men's side. And so this year is a big deal because Ben Flanagan, who's a Canadian from the University of Michigan, actually won the race. And then you had two other Americans on the podium in Scott Fobble and Leonard Career, all within seven seconds of each other, who beat <clears throat> Stephen Sambu and prevented him from getting his fifth straight title. Pretty cool for Ben. He's a University of Michigan athlete. I think he was shocked that he won judging by his little leap across the finish line. <laughs> and so pretty cool to see that. What do you, what do you make of this one? Right. I think it's great. I mean, it's just showing that it's, it, it's nice to be in a mix now where you watch the, the, some of the big road races where, um, it, it, anybody can win either the race directors are trying to get a more open field, which will create great races or they're avoiding potential drug cheats, or maybe the um, all the all the Kenyans or the East Africans that are so focused on getting paid are focusing a little bit more on on marathoning. But it's great to see a traditional race, one that's been going on for so many years, have a bunch of Americans and a Canadian in the mix. And Ben Flanagan, man, what a summer he's having from winning NCAA championship. A couple of big key wins, this one being a huge key win for him. Um, he's a guy we'll be paying attention to over the years. Uh, I'm sure he's got a uh, half marathon and a marathon coming soon in those legs um, based on his running. And anybody who's a 10K runner at the collegiate level is probably moving to the marathon pretty soon. So one other thing, Chris, this is the race where um, one of the races, I believe, where Alberto Zalazar got heat stroke. So Weather is really a factor at this race. It wasn't this year, as we learned from our uh, podcast participant, Greg Mackin, who told us it was pretty good weather this year. But in the past, it's been really, really nasty. Last year was super hot. It can be really, really difficult. So, um, again, it's just a great, iconic, cool race. And we, as fans, want to bring people's attention to it and to get people to realize that, that you don't have to run a set distance to have a, a distance that's uh, sort of considered you know, uh, one that's really important, like the 10 K or the half marathon or the marathon, there's races all across the board of varying distances that have great tradition and are really, really awesome. So, uh, it found this year was really cool to watch. 
Yeah, with great history. And this one requires the lottery to get in, but it's one of these that if you can get in and do it, it's one of the probably the bucket list races you would put on a list if you had one for the U.S. The yeah, the crazy thing, it's like Ben, like he came out of nowhere <laughs> to win that 10K essentially and then sort of came out of nowhere to win this beating Steven Sambu, who has quite the pedigree and was a four-time champion already at this event. So pretty, pretty cool to see that he definitely is going to be going back to Michigan with all smiles. Now, on the women's side, Caroline Chepkowicz, no relation to Beatrice Chepkowicz, who just set the steeplechase world record, she three-peated, so she won her third straight Falmouth Road Race to to get the win and the, and the podium was swept by all Kenyan athletes actually in this case and the first American across the line was a mother of two Melissa Doc 36 year old mother of twins from Boulder Colorado who she said she thought on a good day she could be top 10 but never imagined being this and she's a two-time winner of the citizens race at the Boulder Boulder so she definitely has a legit pedigree of her own, but didn't expect to be the first American yeah, in this cool. one. So that's pretty cool. So that's Falmouth. And the last thing we're going to talk about before we jump into our main topic on the half marathon and marathon is a way too early discussion <laughs> on the 2019 <laughs> women's steeplechase for the U S and people may be sick oh, of us on, talking people. about the women's steeplechase <laughs> at this point, but but I'm not sick of talking about it. And the storylines, if everybody's healthy, going into USA's for next year is going to be really, really fascinating. We already have the storyline of Courtney Frerichs finally knocking Emma off of her top rung as the best American steepler. <clears throat> but we've got a healthy Colleen Quigley who although she didn't have the debut perhaps that she wanted there with the other ladies in Monaco, she's been lighting things up since then and showing her speed, which when you pair that with her steeple prowess is going to make it, make it really interesting next summer when the three of those, if they can all be healthy, kick things off. Colleen, of course, was our episode 67 guest who was an amazing, amazing interview. If you haven't listened to that one, definitely go check it out. But yesterday in Poland, Colleen, who's now back doing a little bit of European racing, she ran a 4.03 to get a personal best in the 1500 in really, really impressive fashion. I don't know if you saw the video, Steve, but she took the lead with, with about 400 to go. She'd been gapped a little bit, caught the leaders, and then went straight to the front and started pressing with 400 to go opened up a gap fairly quickly within that next 100 meters of about four to five meters and then just held on. They started to creep back up on her a little bit in the last 100, but she won it essentially going away with that confident move with 400 to go. So that's pretty cool. It puts her only behind her teammate Shelby Houlihan, Jenny Simpson, and Brenda Martinez in terms of active Americans and their PRs puts her ahead of her teammate, Kate Grace. And when you compare that to Emma Coburn's 1500 meter PR, which is 405, 
and Courtney's 1500 meter PR, which is only 414. What is what do you think that all tells you about how these three ladies, if healthy next year, are going to be going head to head? Well, we know for sure that Courtney Frerichs is faster than 414, right? So is she a 403? I don't know. But, you know, and we know I've, Emma's run that fast or faster. Um, and I think Quigley could go under four in the 15. But this is a little bit interesting, Chris. This is where the steeplechase is so – it's such of a different race um, because – Having the bear, having the race be halfway between a fifteen and a five, and then throwing all those water jumps and barriers in there, it just creates an incredibly different racing experience. And so, I don't know. I think that what the one thing that a fifteen hundred, a four hundred three fifteen hundred tells you is that Emma and Courtney should be very, very wary about having. Colleen in the race at U.S. Championships next year or any race that they're running together with with 150, 200 meters to go. Of course, you've got – with 200 meters to go, you've got a barrier you've just come off of about 10 meters before the 200-meter mark. You've got the water jump and then one more barrier, which play in. But all three of these women are really good technicians over barriers and water jumps. I do think um, both Emma and Cor- – Courtney are a little better over this over the barriers and the water jumps than Colleen is. But I think Colleen still has a lot of ground to gain in that area. I think Colleen could be as good or better over the water jump and barriers than the other two. So, yeah, they should be nervous about it. But the real thing that's interesting to me is how their different racing styles play out in terms of a race scenario and does it do they do they start banging away at each other with a k out or a k in even do we see that or do they sit around and wait to see who kicks at the u.s championships all these three in my mind at this point are so far ahead of everybody that they pretty much can make any team they want to i don't think anybody else at this point in time leo connor has been out for a while i don't know that we'll see her back it's going to take somebody else jumping into the steeple for that to be to somebody to upset these three. But I don't know, Chris, it's hard to say exactly because the way that their skill sets play out, I just know that with Colleen closing in 403, it should make Colleen and Emma a little more nervous about letting that race wait to the last 200 meters to hash out. Yeah, I think the dynamics will be really interesting because before Courtney beat Emma, it was pretty much we knew what was going to happen in terms of race strategy. We knew that the race might start a little bit slow for the first K that's likely Emma would start pushing it after that at some point. And Colleen and Courtney would just hang on for dear life and let Emma kind of carry them to a team. Now, of course, Stephanie Garcia at times has thrown some, some surges into the mix to mess with that dynamic a little bit as it happened in 2016, but but with these three so clearly above and with Emma now suddenly looking around saying, you know what, I may not be the fastest one on the starting line, her gamesmanship will have to kind of increase. Her, her thought process in terms of tactics will have to change a little bit, and she might want to push 
Colleen or Courtney into that lead role and make them do some work versus her having to take, take the bull by the horns in the race. So I think that dynamic and who's willing to do that and how far they go and all those things are going to make for some really interesting racing. But I think you have three women at this point that have the potential to go sub nine in the steeple and break Courtney's current American record already, which is really, really exciting. And it may or may not happen, you know, even within 12 months time, but, but I do think they all have the potential and if they can stay healthy and keep building, eventually that's what we're going to see. And so you're going to have three Americans mixing it up with the best of the best for a long time in this event, which is really, really exciting. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I was, <clears throat> our listeners can judge me, go ahead and judge away. I was spending a little bit of time on the let's run forum yesterday, <laughs> looking about uh, watching people post and discuss Colleen Quigley, um, who, don't even go there. There's a lot of bullshit on that forum. But anyway, people were trying to say that she, they didn't think that she would, they thought that she was like a nine ten at best steepler or a nine Oh five at best steepler. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck they're thinking. Like there's no way she is definitely a sub nine steepler. Now that we've got those other two, um, having getting at that barrier, breaking that, getting right at that barrier and about to break it. So, I mean, Colleen is, more than capable of running with those two in my opinion if she her main issue is staying healthy and not getting too excited and making sure that she gets the work done that she needs to to stay in the game because she's got all the skill sets to get under nine and to compete with these women so i i i don't i don't like it when the pundits out there especially the ones that are on on the ones that are on uh let's run how they choose to sort of play out this Colleen doesn't have the skill set because they're about to be proved wrong in my opinion maybe not this season I don't think we're going to see it this season but I do think that she's um with those other two running right at nine there's no way Colleen doesn't run right at nine because she's going to do everything she can to win as we know we in our interview we were really impressed with her 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 understanding of what it takes to win and her desire to win yeah, and we know she works hard on her mental game. She's got Jerry in her corner. She's teammates with Courtney. If she sees Courtney do something, she's going to think, I can do that too. I roll with her and work out. So, yeah, that's just stupid let's run forum bullshit there. But anyway, that's, that's way too early to start the hype machine. But knock on wood or something that these three ladies can be healthy for 9, 10 11 consecutive months so that they can all toe the line next to June on their a game. And it's going to be fascinating to see who is the best then. Emma, Emma could find herself number three on that U S list sooner rather than later, which would be an interesting spot for her. So, okay. It's time Steve to, to turn to our main topic, which is again, considering our series on what does the race require last episode episode 88 part two of the series we talked about the 5k and teed up the half marathon and 10k distance and we talked a little bit about at the end of that episode while we're thinking about the 10k and the half marathon sort of together as it relates to this discussion so we're going to continue that now before we jive dive into the 10k and half specifically though i had a question 
on the 5K that came in the last week that I wanted to talk about because I think it'll be a good segue to the marathon. And this one comes, by the way, from a name you'll remember, Steve, Jing Huan, who was on our last listener episode podcast who had the stress fracture and was subsequently yeah. routed, ratted out by her teammate because she was doing work <laughs> in the pool after we told her not to. So she emailed us an email asking about some of the things we talked about in the 5K in the 5k episode. And so I wanted to throw that out there, throw out some of her questions and then we'll jump into 10k and half. She says, thank you guys for answering my questions on stress fracture a while back. I greatly enjoyed your most recent episode, which covers your philosophy and key workouts for 5k. May I ask some follow-up questions? Yes, you may, Jingwon. She has (laughs) three of them. Essentially. She says, would you group 5k training and marathon training together Meaning, do you think the goals for a fast 5K and a fast marathon conflict within the same training cycle? This is where the difference between my anonymous friend who ratted me out for going to the pool, she put anonymous in quotes there. So so clearly she knows who that was. And he's in the camp that you can accomplish both a 5K and a marathon PR within the same training cycle as he has done. But I think our typical marathon training Tempos and MGP, mile repeats, doesn't necessarily yield a 5K success. I'm super intrigued by your 200-meter re- repeats, needless to say. So that's the first question, and then I'll ask the other two, and we'll kind of go through them one at a time. Our second question, let's say you block out 12 to 16 weeks for a 5K training cycle. If the goal is pretty big, i.e. shave two minutes off the 5K, what do you recommend as the optimal weekly mileage for someone who's usually doing 50 to 60 miles per week in a marathon cycle? Her last question, I signed up for CIM this year because of my stress fracture. I'm just building that aerobic base now. I have a 5K goal, but do you guys think I have to make a choice between a 5K PR and CIM? So those are all kind of questions that get around the same core question, which is that can you basically train for a 5K and a marathon simultaneously? And I know that you and I probably are on the same page about this answer, but I'm going to let you start. Uh, I mean, absolutely. Here's the thing. I, I want to make sure that our listeners understand that I didn't say they are the same race, right? They, they are very different races. What they require are very, very different. The experience of running one, a 5K, and the experience of running a marathon are very different. There's just pieces of the two that have more in common than people would basically think. So I just want to make sure that no one thinks that I'm saying, oh, if you're a good 5K runner, you're going to be a great marathoner. Or if you're a great marathoner, you're going to be a good 5K runner because that's absolutely bullshit and not true. That was that does not necessarily have to play out. However, so answering the question of can you train effectively for a 5K and a marathon at the same time? Well, here's the thing. There's 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 two answers, and as usual, Steve is always going to have two different sit on both sides of the fence, right? Or to have try to have his cake and eat it too. But I guess let me answer truthfully, which is if you want to have a command performance at one of those two events, you can only do one at a time. However, I still think people could get PRs at the marathon and the five or the five k if they were training 
more focused for the other end of the spectrum. So someone running, trying to get a marathon PR might be, I've, we've seen this many times, Chris, in our team road group and in our podcast group, people who are training hard for a marathon will frequently get PRs at the 5k, 10k half marathon, every distance all the way up the line, because the fundamentals of fitness stay the same and they're getting such aerobic benefit from their marathon training. And they probably haven't focused on a wide variety of paces and so they're just they're just honing their craft. They're working all the different weapons that they need to be able to be effective at every race distance. And so they do PR. But I don't think people should be expecting that if I do 5K training, I'll PR for the marathon or vice versa. They are very different events and they need to be focused on differently in a command performance mindset. If there if this is a command performance. What do you say, Chris? <laughs> I agree completely. I mean most people that are training for marathons have never focused on the 5k at all. So doing a 5k in a marathon build often yields 5k PRs, but that's completely different than optimizing the 5k distance. Likely if they'd only focused on the feet, the 5k, then they would have been able to achieve a better PR on their way to that race versus as a pit stop on the way to a marathon. And so we agree completely and I suspected that's what you would say. Now, I think the, to answer the last question next, which is, do you guys think I have to make a choice between a 5K PR and CIM? The answer for me on that is yes, but <laughs> yes, you have to make a choice. Yes, you have to choose one command performance. Yes, you need to pick one of those as your A race that you focus your training around, that you build your training around. And if you're going to choose CIM, it probably means you could do a 5K along the way and perhaps PR. But if you go the other way and choose the 5K PR, it's probably unlikely, as you're focused, it's probably unlikely that you could also do CIM. So, you know, I guess they're not necessarily mutually exclusive depending on what you choose, but we do, I think, both agree, Steve, that she needs to pick one to really focus on and build your schedule around. As we always say, choose, choose your yep. command performance. Now, again, you might be able to PR along all along the way to CIM, but that wouldn't I wouldn't kind of leave that as an expectation. And certainly, it would be harder to shave big chunks off your five k PR if that is your approach. The other thing that we do worry about at some level, depending on how things fit together in terms of what 5K PR or 5K race you're choosing, is that you know the long run is so important in a marathon build cycle that you have to be very careful about where you squeeze those 5Ks in so you don't miss a big important long run as a building block to CIM. In terms of the last or the second question, Steve, which is that if you're trying to optimize for a 5k, where should your mileage be relative to your mileage in a marathon training block? And if she says she does 50 to 50s to low 60s in a marathon cycle, and how might that compare for a pure 5k cycle? Now, that's a more interesting question that I think has a little bit more nuance. My typical answer to that is that in an ideal world, the mileage isn't that different between your marathon cycle and your 5K cycle, assuming 
or, or with the caveat that it might fit together differently. Obviously, you're not going to need 20 mile runs for a 5K training cycle, but I still believe in potentially 16 and or 18 mile runs in a 5K training cycle. So you might see a little bit lower volume from a long run standpoint, but that would give you the opportunity to potentially add that elsewhere to kind of keep that volume up as we believe in aerobic development that volume can be important as important in a 5k cycle it might just fit together a little bit differently now of course there's nuances to that to that answer which are important which is that it also depends on your history in the sport your strengths and relative weaknesses how long you've been at certain peak mileage levels and and how far you are along in aerobic development because there can be a case for somebody who might have more experience with aerobic development and who may have been doing marathon cycle after marathon cycle to back off of their total mileage for a little bit so that they can focus on the 5k and really get the most out of some of those faster speed sessions so so really it's not a blanket answer there's caveats depending on your strengths and where you're coming from in your history but in general we like high mileage no matter what yep i i mean i think that that's it i mean and, and honestly what i would really suggest is if someone is going to it, that their mileage will probably drop five miles per week. So really isn't enough in my opinion, because I, you know, you and I both believe that all people, everybody should be doing long runs in the 14, 16, 18 mile realm, no matter what they're getting ready for, unless they're a pure 800 meter runner, probably. But all of our listeners, I think that that's the, that's the range they should be in from a long run perspective. And so really there would only be a few times maybe six or seven times in a marathon cycle where folks were going 20 miles or below, above. And so really you don't see that much of a difference, right? Yep. So there you go, Gene Juan. I hope we can be helpful. It sounds like you didn't listen to us last time. So we'll see if you do this time. <laughs> but we hope you're healthy and that you're able to build to your race. Now I will mention before we segue into 10 K half that, you know, we've got, I don't know, we have over 150 athletes going to CIM from Rogue, maybe even 200. I know we've got 200 in our CIM Facebook group, Steve. So it's going to be an insane Rogue presence, including some of our podcast training members at CIM. So if you're there, Jingwan, we will definitely let you know, and hopefully you'll be able to come say hi to us. And we will be doing a CIM specific podcast on race strategy for everybody. So look out for that. Cause I've also had a couple of other podcast listeners ask about it. It may be a special episode, but that will come. All right, let's talk 10 K half. And last time, Steve, we teed up this idea that training for a 10 K and a half looks pretty similar. And that if you're doing a half marathon, then optimizing around a 10 K style program is more effective for your race than optimizing around a, a full marathon if you're doing the half. And so we'll talk more about that kind of at the end of this episode about how there might be some tweaks that are half marathon specific, but let's kind of get to the meat of it with the 10 K. So from a workout standpoint, and obviously again, volume is important. Economy is important year round from a workout standpoint for the 10 K. What do you like to see? Yeah. So the 10 K is, Really interesting because um, these workouts, uh, the, the race, as we've talked about, what this, what this race requires 
is an extended amount of focus in a, in a, in a pretty high intense environment. It's not as intense, obviously, as the 5K, but the amount of time that you're going to be concentrating is longer. And so a lot of, a lot of things can happen within the context of the race that, um, that might be about having attention and keeping attention and staying focused throughout the duration of a, for most of our listeners, 30 to 60 minute window of time. Maybe, you know, even, even people running somewhere in the 70 to 80 minute time range for a 10 K that's a long time to be concentrating and focusing on a single race. Um, and so there, the thing that I think that is really one of the crucial key things to be thinking about in your training processes for 10Ks is trying to run longer reps that will allow you to, to begin to begin to have that experience of staying concentrated and focused. And so we had a, our podcast training group, Chris, they did a workout recently where they did a 3K, a 2K, a two 2Ks and, and three 1Ks. And so that 3K is really crucial. Many of our podcast listeners said afterwards that that 3K was the hardest part getting through it. And of course, that's the way it's designed um, so that people will have that experience of having to stay concentrated for two miles. We do also three times two miles sometimes or a 2-1-2 sometimes, two miles, one mile, two mile. So what we're doing there, Chris, is really trying to get the athlete to pay attention and stay concentrated and focused for an extended period of time at a pace that's not entirely comfortable, especially for our marathon runners. Those folks who are marathoners um, frequently, frequently, frequently will feel um, like they are uh, that they're that they are that, that it's just a real hard thing to focus on. So um, that's one thing. The other thing that I think is really crucial to think about, Chris, is one of the things we haven't talked a lot about with the other um, episodes or at least with our other races and what they require is that for the 10 K um, it's a lot less important as long as you have long reps um, about how long your recovery is. So when we do stuff that's um, of the longer ver variety of marathon and half marathon training, we're usually trying to keep that recovery one minute, one and a half minutes, two minutes, we really don't want folks taking too long in their recovery because we're trying to maximize how much time they're spending at pace and 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 making sure that they get that feel of running consistently for an extended period of time. But in the 10K, as long as you're doing some workouts that are like the Canova one we talked about where you're alternating fast and slow and staying in a in, a, in an engaged place, a lot of your real 10K pace work can have a little more rest than than your half marathon stuff does. Chris, you and I usually will recommend two to three minutes, sometimes even three minutes to five minutes, depending on the level of difficulty of the workout. We don't really recommend five minutes very often, but I'm way less concerned when I'm doing 10K workouts about how long my recovery is, unless an athlete is getting ready specifically for a high-end 10K, and then I do continue to modulate and mess with that recuperation and recovery because I don't want them spending too much time standing around. But it's the one, this is the one race distance where that, that recovery is really a lot more about being ready to handle the next rep than it is necessarily having a set um, objective with how much recovery an athlete gets. So, um, I mean, there's a wide variety of sessions, Chris. I mean, we've done a lot of ladders, you know, ladders where you're going up and down. 
Um, we do a lot of things where we try to ask our runners to close out a hard workout. We've got a, a famous one we do called the Texas 10K that Stan Huntsman, my coach at the University of Texas, recommended. And we did this um, two to three times a year in our training cycles there, which is basically eight quarters with only a 100-meter jog, then two 800s with a 200-meter jog, one mile with a 400-meter jog, and then back down the ladder going two 800s again with a 200-meter jog and finishing finally with eight times one eight times 400 with that 100-meter jog. That's a, that's a Texas 10K. We, we, that workout, we would always do spiked up on the track, and a lot of it was to get the legs and, and, and get the body ready for um, of the long, extended stretch of being on the track and focused and looping and looping and looping. Um, but we use it a lot because it's, I use this workout frequently in a bit of a modified way to, to prep people for their last substantive marathon session. But, um, there's a lot of different 10 K workouts from six times a mile to, you know, 12 times 800 to, um, two, one, two mile, one mile, two mile. There's lots of different ways to cut it up, but the vast majority of the time that you're spending is staying focused, staying concentrated, trying to find that groove, trying to find that rhythm and being in a rhythm running place. And then really trying to make sure that if you're getting ready for a specific 10 K that you are working those long extended repetitions to be sure that you're ready for, um, a long extended push at less than comfortable paces. Yeah. There's a couple of interesting notes there. As I listened to that one is that a lot of these workouts are about 10 K worth of work. <laughs> so, so, you know, when we do them, most of those t- kind of pure 10 K workouts, whether you're going 10 K paces or not, end up adding up to about 10 K of, of faster work, not necessarily including, but sometimes including the recoveries and of course not including the cool downs and the warmups. So, you know, so that's kind of interesting, but that's, I think, a good rule of thumb to use when building 10K works out, workouts is that you want to get about five miles to 10K worth of of quality work in these sessions to kind of steal you for that distance. The other observation I think about is that, you know, for the for the part of this, and we talked about it in part one where we talked about learning how to suffer for for that specific race distance the 800 the mile the 5k a lot of that work was done at race paces or close to race paces for those distances and while you know a significant chunk of our workouts for the 10k are at 10k pace you are working in some faster than 10k pace, some 5K, some 3K work in a 10K cycle as well in order to, you know, make sure you, you've got those kind of faster lights turned on as well. As I think about the interval, you know, the intervals or the pure speed stuff, the VO2 max kind of range of stuff that we do for a 10K program, what percentage would you say, Steve, should be kind of at 10K paces versus at faster than 10K paces? If you're prepping for specifically for a 10K, I think you'd only need to do 10K work, specific 10K work, um, you know, 
three or four times in a cycle getting ready for it. Let's say a cycle, of course, a cycle could be, that leaves a pretty wide open door there, right? But I would say somebody was spending three months to get ready for a 10K. They probably could do three 10K workouts in that cycle and be fine. However, there's a little bit of a caveat or a sort of asterisk I would put beside that. And that's that I would recommend a considerable bit of time also be spent on what we might call non-specific 10K work, which sounds a little bit like a caveat, but it's mostly like fartlek stuff. Chris, you and I both use a lot of fartleks in our training and we'll ask people to do 10K efforts because we're not really worried about hitting that set groove, but we're worried about adjusting and modulating 10K effort over a variety of different courses, whether they be road courses that are hilly, road courses that are flat. For those occasional folks that are doing a 10K on the in cross country, like you did that one time, Chris, where we make sure that you guys do some work over hills and grass so you know what that feels like. So the 10K specific pace is not quite so important. It's kind of like marathoning. It's not, you want to find that groove and you want to make sure you're comfortable at it. But as long as you're doing 5K pace work and you're doing half marathon pace work, you don't have to do a ton of 10K specific work because it 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 it's not especially if you're running a 10k on the roads because that's going to be completely affected by what's going on with your race route and what that course looks like from a race perspective so anyway that's that's kind of where i sit with it i do think people should be doing 10k work year round all the time regardless of what they're getting ready for because of that 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 range we talked about there which is is sort of on the edge of vo2 and also trending up towards threshold like we talked about in one of our other episodes but it's not got it you don't have to do a ton of a specific 10k pace work to be great at it as opposed to kind of what you need to do with the 5k where you kind of need to find that groove and make sure you're in it because it's so uncomfortable for many people the 10k's okay reasonably for the first two to three miles it just gets really hard after that and so that's just about toughness and not necessarily about being in that well-worn groove yeah yeah and that's the part i was trying to kind of allude to there which is that it's interesting this is the first distance we've really talked about where most of your work is going to be at different paces but you're going to have some key sessions as you say three to four where you're really focused on that 10k pace while the rest of your work is either faster than that or maybe a little bit slower than that when you're working the tempo, the tempo or you know threshold kind of level paces and and efforts. And so, so the the 10k kind of fits into that weird middle ground where, in some ways, kind of like the marathon, you're in you're in a a physiological checkbox, no man's land, in a sense, although. The marathon pace is is more of a no man's land than the 10k pace, I would say. But but for sure that you're doing most of your work not a 10k pace with those key key sessions to dial into your 10k pace, as we described. The other thing I want to make clear as we talk about this distance is that while we certainly believe that when you're doing any race distance from a mile on up to the marathon, that you need those long runs, potentially, as you said earlier, 14, 16, 18 mile long runs for those races less than a marathon. Those are critical for all distances. But you know, I think with the 5K and below, you can perhaps take some shortcuts that may not require in order to, you know, to optimize things to get 
to get the most out of whatever you want that same distance long run. But once you get to the 10K and certainly the half, you need to be doing 14, 16, or 18 mile long runs. And ideally in our world, 16 to 18 mile long runs consistently, really year round in order to optimize a 10K cycle, but certainly within a 10K cycle in order to get the most out of it. And Chris, we want to make sure that they're also um, not just making those long runs easy. And this in both the 10K and the half marathon cycles we'll be talking. There needs to be quality happening in those long runs in order to be ready for that distance where it's not as crucial for a 5K or under racer, someone who's focused on those distances. It's not as critical for them to be doing uh, closes or race-specific work within their long run. But as you get to the 10K and certainly up into the half marathon and the marathon, long run quality workouts come into play much more importantly. Yeah, for sure. Because we're because we're tra- essentially trying to train that resilience, the ability to stay focused mentally and to stay on your game physically when that kind of grinded out pain starts to pile up on your shoulder, the monkey on your back, as we sometimes call it. So let's talk a little bit about that, both for the 10K and the half, because I think we would agree from a sort of pure speed perspective that those the 10K and the half are going to look pretty similar on the interval end of things. From a long-run workout standpoint, though, it might manifest a little bit differently. So... What would be some examples for the 10K first and then the half or ways to work pace into your long run that would prepare you for those distances? Well, you know what I'm going to say? My first and favorite is doing closes or as Millen calls them, fast finishes. Um, Especially, I mean, it's really good for 10K runners. It really puts, as uh, Bill Squires would say, the tiger and the cat by closing out um, hard long runs and getting yourself ready for accelerating, making moves. And maybe in some cases, if you're in a training group, sort of throwing down on each other at the end of long runs. And we've seen that happen sometimes where, and actually in marathon training, I'm not so keen on that happening, but when my athletes are running 10 K and half marathon, I want them to get after each other in the last 20, 30 minutes of a long run frequently, because it really helps simulate some of those turning over, moving, responding when your legs are dead and tired. And um, it doesn't really negatively affect their recuperation and recovery because the workout, they're usually not running at their half 10K pace at that point. But the biggest thing and the most important thing I would say is getting closes in, getting fast finish runs at the end of your 14, 16, or 18 mile run. How often? You know, I, I think it's a little dangerous to do a, a close every single long run. I do know Lydiard's athletes did them frequently and they really benefited from them. But I think that um, there are times where if you do too many closes on long runs and a close, Chris, just for our listeners who might be listening to this for the first time and haven't heard this term, a close is basically the last 20 to 30 minutes of your long run based on time. You can do it also mileage, but we like to do it on time so people don't freak out too much. But you basically start it. You, you you're at your easy long run pace. You just start to slowly but surely ratchet down the pace by three, four, maybe five seconds per mile. Eventually, maybe ten. You might even ten seconds per mile as you get going. 
and you're just trying to speed up and speed up and speed up in the context of your long run without necessarily looking at specific pace objectives. You're just closing it out, moving faster, finishing faster through the last 20 to 30 minutes, usually approaching somewhere around 10K pace by the end if we're feeling amazing. Um, we don't really like people to go faster than their 10K pace at the end of the long run because it starts to really stimulate the VO2 system and we're really not trying to do too much of that. So it, you don't want people racing at the end of their of their uh, long run uh, close, but you do want them moving down towards that 10K pace. So Chris, one of the things that we really like is to see that close happen consistently. Um, another long run workout for 10K and half marathoners, but especially a 10K is one-on-one off in over um, chunks of time. So that's one minute at a hard, fast pace, which might even be down approaching, uh, you know, between 5K and 10K pace with a one-minute easy jog where they're accelerating and then slowing down and then accelerating and then slowing down and doing that in maybe 10-minute chunks, 15-minute chunks, maybe even 20-minute chunks. Um, or another way to do that is to do two 10-minute chunks where you do – Ten five repetitions of one minute hard, one minute easy, which would be 10 minutes, and then maybe take 10 minutes of easy running and then doing another section of that where you did another 10 minutes of one minute hard, one minute easy. Um, and the reason you do that is because it simulates what happens in a race of being having to accelerate and then slow down and then accelerating and then slowing down. But it also helps you get um, your legs a little bit more beat up and a little bit more uh, moving in. in you move, end up moving pretty fast for the rest of your long run. You end up getting a, a bit of a quicker long run in that way frequently because you've sort of primed the system and got it moving. So those are two ones that I would suggest. What other ones would you suggest? For the 10K, I like another one that we've done before and I give to my group sometimes inside a long run, sometimes as a part of a workout. You know, we like a couple of different versions of 3-2-1 Farlicks, but my favorite within a long run for a 10K workout is where you do three, two, one continuous and you do, and then a four minute easy recovery. So you do three minutes at half marathon rolling straight into two minutes at 10 K rolling straight into one minute at five K pace, all continuous kind of dropping down the pace in those, those several minute chunks and then four minutes easy. And then repeat that cycle a few different times during the workout, perhaps three times, sometimes four times during the long run in order to kind of like the one, one practice shifting gears, practice finding a, finding a certain pace and holding that rhythm for a bit and then pressing down. It also kind of practices that, that kind of closing idea within the context of those little segments. And so that's another one I like as it relates to the half marathon itself. You know, we'll, we'll of course do, you know, various half marathon pace segments inside of a long run in a bunch of different ways. I just rode into my long run this weekend for my athletes doing half marathons coming up this fall. They're going to be doing three times 10 minutes at half marathon pace with five minutes easy between each of those segments. So instead of having to think about a certain mileage distance, just get 10 minutes of half pace take five minutes easy and then repeat that a couple more times. So just practice getting into that rhythm, getting recovery, and then having to find that rhythm again afterwards. Yeah. 
So those are some examples, but really you can do it a bunch of different ways. And, you know, the kind of general rules of thumb are for 10K workouts, we like to see some, a little bit more dynamic nature where you're going to be working a variety of paces within that long run. For half marathon, we'll see some of that too, but also kind of dial in more into those half marathon segments where you're really practicing half marathon pace in the context of the long run. We also like to use similar to progressions, but or sorry, to closes, but to do progressions that might be a more extended close within the context of a long run where instead of doing 20 or 30 minutes at the end of a long run, you might actually take the final eight to 10 miles and do that in progression, starting perhaps somewhere slower than marathon pace, but then working down to potentially half marathon or faster than half marathon pace, even 10 K pace and some of those longer progressions, which is another way to check the box for both the 10 K and the half marathon distance. So those are some examples there. And then of course, if you're doing 10 K and half work, getting in some, some threshold work, some tempo runs or tempo or half marathon, longer intervals, during your core weekly workouts, as we've talked about with the other distances, is also going to be important. Now, when we talk about prep races for the 10K, you know, this one is kind of interesting for me in that, you know, for a lot of, like for the 5K, you can do, you can do a 5K to prep for another 5K. And as you said on the last episode, a 5K can be the best workout for a 5K, period. When it comes to a 10K, I find that even though it's a shorter distance race, that they can be a little bit difficult to recover from. So when it comes to planning 10K prep races, I typically will advise my athletes to choose under distance options for that as well circling the big 10k they're shooting for on the calendar and then perhaps trying to get one maybe two 5k's in advance of that that might start you know as far as six seven weeks out and kind of happen every other week for a couple weeks and then give you a couple weeks to that 10k what do you think there yeah i mean as many different races well i mean it's just these shorter distance races, 10K and 5K, they just, you just need, especially our, most of our listeners who are marathoners and half marathoners, you just got to scratch that itch. You got to get out there and get after it. And you got to get the feel for doing the race itself. So doing one or two or three 10Ks will never hurt you in a cycle because you just, you get recovered from them. Again, they're the best the way to run a 10K effort anyway. I mean, the best 10K workout you can possibly do is a 10K race. And so getting in and doing them is really important. And then the lo- the shorter race distances are really key because they really help prime the pump and get you ready to feel faster. So slowing off that 10 seconds or 15 seconds per mile between 15K, 15, 5K pace and 10K pace feels like night and day. And it's amazing how much easier it is to get at that 10K pace when you've done some shorter stuff. I don't think it's so critical for our listeners to be to be thinking so much about doing an over distance race for a 10k um it's certainly not important to do an over distance race for a half marathon but for 
a, for a 10K, it, it, it's valuable to do a good hard half marathon. And I usually will put one in a cycle for people, but I don't think it's super critical. Um, so I think that uh, it's way more important to do under distance races and race and the actual 10K race distance, because for many of our listeners, it's just going to be really hard for them to figure out how to do it, you know, how to get it right, how to race it appropriately. Yeah, and what do you think for the half in terms of prep races? Well, I think for the half, any I, I think again, it, a race down is good. Five k and ten k are both valuable. Um, I don't think it's as critical for a half. I've had many people run a half without any prep, other than. But if you're not going to prep for a half. I think it's valuable always to run a race distance down if possible to be prepared. I think it's really good to do that. Um, and I think that, but I do think that it's, it's, you know, there's another way to skin that cat for the half, which isn't as important because it's extended. It's long enough. I think it's valuable to race it, but it's not necessary. You could do some workouts that would be key efforts like Chris, maybe two times 20 minutes at your half marathon pace, for someone to kind of be ready for what would need to be done for a race. So if a half marathon is not available, say four weeks or six weeks out from your command performance half, then you could do two times 20 minutes. Um, that might be valuable. There's ways to kind of skin that cat a little differently rather than racing as opposed to the 10 K where I think it really is important to get some races in, you know? Yeah, I agree with that because you can definitely simulate the half inside of a long run, as we talked about by doing some version of the long run workouts that we've already described. We have a long run for the marathon that we call the McClung special, a long run workout for the marathon that we call the McClung special. And I have a version of it for the half marathon. And it basically involves people doing a chunk of half marathon work, a really hard one, one fart lick, and then another chunk of half marathon work with potentially a progression built into it at the end to try to get down to 10K pace to simulate, simulate a close. And so that workout to me is sort of a race simulation in a sense that you have a start simulation with that opening chunk of half marathon work. The farlick in the middle, the 1-1 one, one farlick, which we often do in the middle, is really just to wear the legs out so that when you do that final chunk of half marathon work progressing down, it feels like the end of a race and you can practice both the physical fatigue and dealing with that, but also the mental challenge of focusing and staying on it when you start to really hurt. So, so that's a good point, which is that you don't necessarily need those prep races for the half that oftentimes the long run workouts can be better replicas of what you're going to face there. Absolutely. So as we think about this sort of holistically, you know, we've talked about, some different long run workouts for the half. But what else might you say if you're going to sort of take a base 10K program and extend it to run a half? What else, what other nuances might you tell people about that would be relevant to customize it for the half distance? Well, one thing, Chris, is I, I in my preparations for half marathons, myself and for other athletes, there's one thing, there's one workout specifically that I suggest all the time, and that's a progression run. And we do pro a lot of progression runs in our plan. Um, but progression runs are 
just so valuable to getting prepped for what you need to do to run a well-run half marathon. Um, and it also allows you to kind of extend the dis- the paces above your half marathon pace through your half marathon pace and then closing out coming down from half marathon pace into towards down towards your 10k pace. So I really love half marathon training blocks to have some extended, extended uh, progressive pace runs and a progressive pace run. Chris is, is there's a couple of ways to do them, but our, my favorite way to do them um, is really, I really like it. So, and I'll give everyone a description of it in just a second, but I really like it because it forces people to negative split and it gets them to start to feel what negative splitting how 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 good negative splitting feels in a half marathon, right? I mean, so many people go out too fast in a half, and it's just too long to go out too fast and be able to sustain it. So people end up jogging or taking it too easy or not pushing hard enough, and then they're really disappointed at the end of the race because they leave 30 seconds to an entire minute out on the course because they went out too fast. And so these progressive, progressive pace run really does a good job of making sure that runners – get started going out slower and a little bit easier then running through down to half marathon pace. And then very importantly, closing out their half marathon pace. So Chris, the way I like to have my folks do progression runs is a lot of times what I'll do is I'll start them at about 30 seconds slower than their MGP, or maybe in some cases, if they're really specifically getting ready for a half, then I'll have them do a slow, easy warm up and maybe some cool down but they'll be doing basically six to eight miles. Typically I like to see eight miles, but six to eight miles of a progression run where they're basically starting at their marathon goal pace and cutting down 10 seconds per mile or starting if it's six, then they want to start at their MGP and cut down 10 seconds per mile. If they're doing eight or 10 progression, then they start with a few seconds, 10 seconds slower than their marathon goal pace or 20 seconds slower than the marathon goal pace. And basically they're progressing in 10 second jumps per mile faster and faster and faster. The two things that happen here is number one, it really gets people to understand that negative splitting is important. And number two, it makes and it, it makes them know that negative splitting is important because if they go out too fast, they can't close down towards their 10K pace for the last two to three miles and they get really frustrated. But if you go out slow enough, you should be able to get down to your 10K pace for that last mile at least, maybe even faster than that. And so progressing down is really crucial for that. So that's what's great. Number two, it allows the runner to start feeling, to feel paces that are faster than half marathon pace at the end of it. And that's taking advantage of what the gifts that the half marathon gives you, which is, in my opinion, the easiest race to run because it feels more comfortable for so long at your half marathon pace. It feels even more comfortable if you start out a little slower than your half marathon pace, get down to half marathon pace, maybe miles three, four, and five, hold that for a while, and then you can try to close out from half marathon pace down towards 10K pace over the last two to three miles. That's a really easy, really great way to run a half marathon, and it usually feels really, really good. So, Chris, that's my go-to is a progressive run, um, which is a little different than a close, but um, that's one I love to do. And then, again, the aforementioned ones that we talked about for doing a 10K, both the one-on-one-off or the fartlek as you discussed – those are also excellent workouts to do for a half. Um, an, another workout is, like I said, that two times 20 minutes at your half marathon pace. 
that can be inserted in a long run as well. That can be helpful as well. Um, when we do tempo runs, I usually like tempo runs to sit at, at 20 minutes to 30 minutes of, of, of running because you're just checking that physiological box off that the half marathon pace hits. But when you're doing something that's in preparation for a half marathon, you kind of need to go for longer period of time than just the 20 minutes because it's more than a physiological adaptation. It's actually what does your race require as we've been talking about in this entire series. Yep. Agree with all of that. The other piece that we have to remember for what the half marathon requires is that typically for people, that's where nutrition becomes a factor as well, potentially, depending on their expected finish time. You may need to be working in some gels, some hydration elements, maybe even salt tabs if it's warm for some people. So that's another factor that you start to deal with at the half marathon distance that you may or may not deal with below the half distance and you need to make sure that you're practicing that in the context of your workouts, your long runs certainly, and certainly in the dress rehearsals that might be these long run workouts. So keep that all in mind as well as you move up in distance to the half. Anything else to add here, Steve? No, other than this just general caveat, marathoners, run other races other than the marathon. Give yourself a chance. We've, we've preached this how many times, Chris? We preach it over and over and over again, but I'm just going to do it one more time. A, well, a well-trained marathoner runs all race distances 5K on up, and an adventurous well trained marathoner runs all race distances from the mile up to their marathon race distance. So I cannot give a more emphatic plug towards racing many, many race distances. And that includes Chris, the 15 K, which is 9.3 miles or a 10 miler when their 10 miler becomes available or a 20 K when you see it, or I mean, there's so many race distances that are so crucial and so key that really help you become the best runner you can possibly be. And marathoning, again, hits no physiological checkbox. So just running a marathon without doing all the other race distances and race training efforts really limits you and boxes you in to having a much less effective, and in my opinion, a less well-rounded program and and protocol for getting ready for the marathon. So I would just pitch one more time as I pitch, as you and I both pitch many, many times, be varied in your race distances, be varied in your workout distances, and be sure that you're hitting all these different race distances and energy systems so that you're the most prepared you can possibly be for any race distance you choose to run at any point in time. You stole my thunder because that's what I was going to say to close this thing out, which is that... Yeah, sorry. <laughs> we're going to talk next episode, part four of this series on the marathon specifically, which, you know, we've probably already spilled all of our secrets on that over the course of the podcast so far in our 89 episodes. But I, I was going to do, do the same, which is to remind people that if you're training for a 5K, you're training for the marathon. If you're training for a 10K, you're training for the marathon. If you're training for a half, you're training for the marathon. That training cycles at all of those distances individually, even if you're not doing a marathon anytime soon, will help prepare you for the marathon because the faster you can run those shorter distances, 
the faster you'll be able to run the marathon when you go back up to that distance. And so it's because it's, it's funny to me. I'll often have to have the conversation with one of my athletes who has become marathon obsessed is, uh, is I convince them to try to do a cycle outside of the marathon, either a 10 K or a half or something different. They think that they're somehow missing time training for the marathon, that they're somehow going to get worse at the marathon or not prepare for the marathon during that quote unquote break when they're actually setting themselves up for a better marathon PR when they come back to the marathon versus going from marathon cycle to marathon cycle to marathon cycle to marathon cycle over and over and over again and basically creating a, a training plateau or flatlining, so to speak, on their potential in the marathon because they're not working the other pieces of the pie. So, yep. You got your soapbox. I got mine. (laughs) (laughs) Yay! And with that, (laughs) a pair of soapboxes, we will close this one out and we will finish it up. Part four, I don't know if it'll be our next episode, but it'll be coming where we talk specifically about marathon training. So look out for that. This has been episode 89 on What Does the Race Require? As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.